Matthew chapter 5, we're beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be blessed or blessed for a world that has experienced the advent of social media? Whenever I hear that word, I cannot help but think of hashtag blessed culture. It's, it's just what naturally pops into my mind. Uh, in writing about the hashtag blessed phenomenon, one New York Times writer says this, here are a few of the ways that God has touched my social network over the last few months. He helped a friend of mine get accepted into graduate school. She was blessed to be there. He made it possible for a yoga instructor's Caribbean spa retreat Blessed to be teaching in paradise, she wrote. He helped a new mom outfit her infant in a tiny designer frock. A year of waiting patiently, and it finally fits, feeling blessed. He graced a colleague with at least 57 Facebook wall postings about her birthday. So blessed for all the love, she wrote to approximately 900 of her closest friends. God has, in fact, recently blessed my network with dazzling job promotions, coveted speaking gigs, the most wonderful fiancés ever, front row seats at Fashion Week, and nominations for many a 30 under 30 list. There's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life, but calling something blessed has become the go-to term For those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposefully elicit envy. The linguist Deborah Tannen said, blessed or blessed is now what we say where in the past we might have said lucky. But what makes these examples that I've given humble brags is not the word blessed in and of itself, but it's the context. Telling the world your fiancé is the best or that you've been invited to do something impressive. Actually, I don't even see the humble in that. I just see the brag. So in a world where this is the way that we think of what it means to be blessed, and when we live in a world where this is the way that we use the word blessed, how do we relate to the teaching of Jesus? Right? When the Bible was translated into Latin from the Greek, the words for blessed are that begin each of these statements in the Beatitudes were translated into the Latin word beatus, which is where we get that word beatitude. 
But that word carries with it two kind of dovetailed connotations that should shape the way that we see these passages. The first connotation of the word blessed is that of being made holy or, or being set apart in some way. That when you are blessed by God, as say the Israelites were in the Old Testament, there is a sense that you are being kind of set apart for God's purposes. So in some ways, if you've been blessed by God, there is a, like you are special sense to that. There is a, you are different sense to that in, in the sense that you have somehow been marked by God and set apart for his purposes. The other connotation, though, which some of you may see in your Bibles and the way that they're translated, and which should go hand in hand with this idea of being made holy or being set apart by God, is the word happy. And I actually believe that maybe this is the primary way that we should read what Jesus is saying here. Here's why. The Sermon on the Mount is not simply Jesus's like manifesto for discipleship. That's somehow the way that it is described. It's not simply a how-to manual. The Sermon on the Mount is a backwards king who is preaching a backwards message to the world. The things that he is saying throughout are like recontextualizations of everything. Everything that Jesus is saying, to some extent, is taking what was commonly known by people, and, and turning it on its head. Let me give you an example of what I, what I mean. We'll dig into this passage in a later sermon, but, but just to give you a sense of this, verse 21 of Matthew 5 says this. You don't have to turn there. Verse 21 says this, though. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So you notice the, you've heard it said, but I tell you this format. Like that is the framework in which each of these statements of Jesus, um, really throughout much of this sermon, is framed. You know this because this is what you've learned from the culture. You've learned this from your parents. You've learned this from just kind of living life in this world. This is what you know to be true, but here's what's really true. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And, and here's what's happening. As Jesus expounds on this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, construction there's a key element to this. He's incriminating everybody in his statements. He's incriminating everybody. So, so if you're someone who looks down your nose in judgment at those who have committed murder, Jesus says, be careful because you are just as guilty, right? No one comes out of the sermon of the, of the unscathed or untouched. If you feel righteous because you've never committed adultery... Or if you feel better than other people because you've never committed adultery, Jesus says, well, have you ever even looked at somebody lustfully? You're guilty. Everyone is guilty. And that is so important for us to understand today because that's actually the starting point of our relationship to Christ. If you aren't guilty, then Jesus can't help you. If you're not guilty, then Jesus can't help you. He famously told the self-righteous Pharisees, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you aren't a sinner, if you aren't a sinner, then what can Jesus do for you? I think this is actually a really big deal. Many people like the teaching of Jesus, right? It's it's all about selflessness and, and loving other people. What's there not to like? But until you embrace the fact that you are functionally incapable of actually living the kind of life that Jesus describes in this sermon, then you will be separated from him. Until you recognize that it is your sin that separates you from God, then you will be at a standstill. Because according to Jesus, the starting line for us is repentance. We've talked about this a lot. This is central to his message. If you aren't willing to turn from your sin and to turn from your former self and take on the person of Christ, take on this new man, as Paul calls it, then you're not going anywhere. It's not about walking an aisle or going through a confirmation class or praying a sinner's prayer. It's about actually turning from sin and following Christ. And amazingly, because we were born into sin, we actually have the ability to pray a prayer or go through a class or walk down an aisle and talk to a pastor and yet ultimately do nothing differently in our lives. We have the ability to walk through rituals and walk out unchanged. Because those aren't really the things that change us, are they? They help. They maybe point the way. They maybe guide us towards the way of Jesus. But ultimately, it is only Him. And it is only the Holy Spirit of God that can affect the kind of change that we're talking about in our lives. Unless we see ourselves as people of great sin, who fall short of the glory of God, and who have no hope on our own, then we will be no different from the Pharisees who had no need of a physician. So the Sermon on the Mount, to some extent, is is like Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. To those who hear this message, you either embrace it or you don't. It's like the rich young ruler. Like, what do I need to do to follow you? Well, go give away all your wealth and come follow me. Oh, okay, well, never mind. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is doing for us. What is it that you hold more dear than Christ? What is it that you really secretly hope will save you? What is it that you really think will make you happy? What is it that you really think will make your life better? If it isn't Him, the Sermon on the Mount is telling us you are wrong. And let's be real, Jesus in his time had a massively unsuccessful ministry by our modern standards, didn't he? Yes, there were times when great crowds were following him around, but considering his conversion rate was pretty low, right? Everybody ultimately abandons him. And there's a reason for that. Jesus didn't come to like convert anybody in a religious sense. Jesus didn't come so that people would leave Judaism and convert to this new religion that he was starting. Jesus didn't come to just intellectually convince people that his way was a better way. He came to buy people. He didn't just come to convince people to change or to join up with the new thing. 
He came to buy people. You know, that's not language we use a whole lot because it's the language of slavery. And yet it is incredibly biblical language. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, believer, you are not your own. When Christ came into your life, he purchased you. He he bought you. He bought your debt. And now he owns you. You are not your own. You are his. If you're like a normal person, your natural response to that, because of your sin, should probably be to bristle at it a little bit. What do you mean he owns me? What do you mean he bought me? You are not your own. But here's the thing. To borrow more of Paul's language, we we are now slaves to Christ. If he is truly our Lord and Master. But it's like a reversal of slavery as we know slavery. It's like a reversal of what we think of when we think of slavery. In today's world, the narrative of slavery is is harsh, to say the least. People who are kidnapped, forced against their will into manual labor or worse, treated terribly, abused, neglected, treated as if they were subhuman or non-human, like they're just a possession. That's not at all what Paul's talking about here, is it? No, no, no. In, in, in Paul's narrative and in the narrative of the gospel, we haven't been kidnapped. We've been rescued, right? We've been ransomed. In his narrative, we were living under the harsh form of slavery. It was slavery to sin, slavery to the brokenness of this world. And we were so accustomed to it that we had learned to love it. It was so ingrained within us. It was so much a part of who we are that we had learned to love it. When I was the director at the Hub a few years ago, we would continually encounter women in our purchase program who had come out of a life in the human trafficking and um, sex work industry. And they had, in most cases, come out of these like horrific, abusive, traumatic situations. And amazingly to all of us, their desire Go right back to you. You would think when that was what you were in, that what you would most want would be for somebody to come in and pull you out of it and give you a new life and give you a new way of life and remove all of those things from you. But yet that's not really how trauma works. Like there is this weird kind of Stockholm syndrome thing that takes place where it's like, I don't want it, but I want it. And we all experience this with sin in our own lives, right? We all experience this where we go, I know it's not right, or I know I I don't want it, but I want it. So many of these women, they had lived this old life for so long that even though it was terrible, it was somehow more comfortable. 
One of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption. And uh, in that movie, there's kind of a subplot with a character named Brooks, who is this old inmate who's been in the prison forever. And, and, and it never, the movie never tells us what he did, but he must have killed somebody because he's just been in jail forever and ever and ever and ever. And at, at one point in the movie, he suddenly and kind of unexpectedly is paroled. And he's let out of jail. If you've seen the movie, you know, he, he gets out of jail and he's, he's free for like the first time in his adult life. And he hates it. And he commits suicide. Like he, he, he doesn't know how to live outside of the prison, which is like a real thing that happens for people who've been inside jail for so long. They get out and it's just like, I don't know how to, the world is different. I don't know how to function in this even though seemingly everything should be better for me now because I have freedom and I have my life back. I, I, don't, I don't want this. I would rather go back inside. Isn't that incredible? I think we have to approach the Sermon on the Mount with this kind of lens and specifically today the Beatitudes because this is Jesus describing for us who have been conditioned by a world of brokenness. This is Jesus describing for us what this new way of life looks like. And that's why I say, I think the best word that we can use here is the word happy. Because what's crazy is <laughs> you read through these and you're like, what? Like the way of this life will become a reality for us progressively as you become a temple of the Holy Spirit as you've been bought by the blood of Christ, this way of life will be uncomfortable at first. It will feel strange and foreign because we're so accustomed to the former life of slavery. And we look at these and we go, how in the world are these things going to bring me happiness? Just, just walk through them real quick, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As you go through that list, these are not things that sound like blessings to us. Why don't they sound like blessings to us? Because we've been conditioned by the brokenness of our world. What sounds like blessing to us? Well, getting wealthy sounds like a blessing to me. Being successful sounds like a blessing to me. Being beloved by other people sounds like a blessing to me. Having influence and power sounds like a blessing to me. Because in our world that is ruled by sin, that's what blessing is. That's not blessing in the way of Christ. In fact, Jesus, I think at the very least, would call us to be leery or speculative about those kinds of things in our life. Jesus tells us that wealth is deceitful, right? He, he tells us outright, it's going to lie to you. It's going to whisper things in your ear that are not true. Is it evil in and of itself? No. But can it lead you away from the truth of the gospel? 100%. And how many of those things are there in our world? Power, influence, desire for accumulation and material possessions. But let me ask you this. What do those things actually get you? 
What do those things actually get you? If, if you... If your view of life is only the 75, 80 years that you will be on this earth, like if, if that's the scope of your view of life, then I can kind of understand why those things might seem important. But if your scope of life, if your worldview is actually Christ-centered, then your word, worldview is actually eternal. So even though you are here in the here and now and, and in this present moment, and, and even though this 75, 80 years that you'll be on this earth seems like a long time, if your scope is actually Christ-centered, it's a blip on the map. Like it's nothing compared to eternity as a child of the king, as one who will see the kingdom of heaven. It's nothing and if that is your view, if your view is this eternal view, then what is wealth in this 75, 80 years? What is power and influence in this 75, 80 years? What, what does it mean to have the new car or the new home? What does it mean to accumulate? It means nothing. It means nothing. And yet it's still what we want, isn't it? It's what we've been conditioned to want. Even when we say we don't, we do. It will do nothing for us in the long term. We won't stand before Christ and have him be impressed by what we've accumulated in our time here. He's not going to be impressed by the position you got at work. Or the home you bought, the car you bought. Jesus says, you want the real stuff? You want the stuff that is actually real and true, that actually reflects what reality really is outside of this sphere? Then here's what you're looking at. If you can grasp what Jesus has done for you and what awaits you in the new heavens and the new earth, if you can embrace and be obedient to the Spirit of God within you, then living here is going to become a lot less comfortable. But what does that matter? Because it's a blip. And what we have to look forward to in Christ is far greater than anything we could ever find for ourselves in this life and in this world. Our only response to Him is to begin modeling and living values of the kingdom. And now, thankfully, we're not on our own to like have to figure all that out. What does that mean? What does it look like? Not only has Jesus very explicitly told us what those things look like, he's also modeled it for us through his life. You just go through that list. Which of those things does Jesus not embody? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, seeking to be obedient to the Father, being reviled and persecuted, seeking to be a peacemaker, being pure in heart, being merciful, which of these things are not our Savior? When we say that we are called to pattern our lives after Jesus, I think many of us think that that just means loving people in kind of a vague sense. I, I really think the Sermon on the Mount is meant to give practical 
legs to what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It will show us what it looks like to be the body of Christ in this world. We simply have to receive it with humility and repentance. We have to receive it with a prayer that says, Lord, I am not pure in heart, but I want to repent of my sin and I want to pursue purity. Father, I'm not a peacemaker. In fact, I've instigated trouble and drama in my life, but I repent of that and I want to pursue your way. Father, I am not somebody that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, if anything, the contrary. But I want to repent of that and I want to pursue you. Father, I live a life of comfort and ease and I pursue the honor of other people and the respect of other people. I am not persecuted and reviled for your name's sake, and I want to repent of that and pursue your way. Jesus says this is where we find happiness. This is where we find happiness. I've been listening to this podcast. Some of y'all may be familiar with this that's recently been really popular. It's called like the Happiness Lab or, or something like that. It's a, is that, yeah, is that right? Yeah, so it's this Yale... Yale, right? Yale professor who started a class at Yale on happiness. And it became the most attended class ever at Yale University. Uh, they put the class online. It became the most attended class online they ever had. This is a crazy story. They've now made a podcast about this. And in each of these podcast episodes, she's kind of like going through these individual things that research shows will make you more happy. And they're things like spending time with other people, <laughs> you know. And even in that, even though there are some ways that we can take steps forward and maybe find some semblance of happiness, here's the deal. Anything that we find that is not ultimately rooted in the person of Christ is temporary and temporal. It will not outlast our 75, 80 years. It will not do anything for us except maybe brighten an occasional moment. The only thing that will have lasting, eternal impact, the only thing that we can truly bank on is stuff that doesn't sound right. So I think the Sermon on the Mount is meant to give some feet to this. It's meant to help us learn what it really looks like to follow Christ as his disciple. It will show us what it looks like to be the body of Jesus in this world, his hands and feet. Again, we have to receive it with humility and repentance and selflessness. Don't just ask what this can do for you. If your end goal in pursuing Christ is your own happiness, then I still think you're maybe missing it a little bit. Don't just ask what this can do for you. It's when we start to ask this question, what can this do through me? That I think we're really starting to grasp a larger picture of what Jesus intends for us as his church. It's not that the church has a mission that Jesus has given to it. It's that God's mission has a church. 
We are the agent. We are the emissaries. We are the ambassadors of God's mission. The gospel is not just for you. If it is just for you, you have not grasped the gospel. It is for your neighbor, it is for your children, it is for your coworker, it is for the world. And if you hold it and say that it's true and say that it's changed your life, but yet it's just for you, you haven't got it. You've missed it somehow. It's the greatest news we could ever hear. We cannot keep it to ourselves. When we start to ask those questions, what can this do through me? What can the Lord do through me? What has Christ called me to in my day to day? It is when we start answering those questions that we start to understand, I think, what it really looks like to be blessed. Because we will start to pursue the way of Christ, which leads us to purity of heart, and which leads us to be peacemakers, and which leads us to be merciful, and leads us to pursue the glorification of His name at all costs because he has given everything for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for this teaching of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that it would illuminate our hearts. God, would you turn our focus to you? Father, I'm sometimes astounded As we gather together on Sunday mornings and I recognize that you impacted the world with fewer people than we even have in this room this morning. As you made disciples and sent them out to make more disciples and they made more disciples and sent them out to make more disciples, Father, 2,000 plus years later, we're sitting here on a Sunday morning talking about you and your gospel. You have done a remarkable thing. And Father, I pray that in no way would that stop here. Father, in no way would, would we like hear your gospel and then do nothing. Father, would you inspire our hearts to pursue the way of Christ in the whole of our lives, so that more people might hear your gospel, so that more people might be changed by your gift of grace, so that more people might turn over their lives to you as disciples, and and, and that that they would go and make disciples, Father. Father, my prayer is never that we would be a large church. My prayer is that we would be a reproductive church. God, that we would be multiplicative. God, that you would be multiplying those who are being saved because of the people in this room. We pray that you would make those things a reality. In your holy name we pray. Amen.